Well, let me uh, invite you to open up your Bible and turn with me once again to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. First Corinthians uh, 7 verses 6 through 11 this morning. I suppose I should say while you're turning there, uh, I want to say thank you for your perseverance as we have been making our way through some challenging material in Paul's first letter. And I suppose I should also say just a heads up, we're going to need uh, the Lord to help us to persevere today once again as we look at some, some difficult teaching. But we trust this being the, the word of God. Uh, this is the word that we need to, to live for the glory of Christ and uh, the glory of our triune God. Um, I, I also want to say, just as we get started here, that I've been preparing for some time now to preach through 1 Corinthians 7, and I've wrestled with weeks um, in terms of how to break this up. And uh, obviously Paul has a lot to say here in 1 Corinthians 7 about some complicated and difficult issues. And I didn't want to just give you a big... Uh, raw slab of meat. <laughs> Hopefully then um, we're going to approach this passage in digestible chunks. And uh, what we're going to look at today is uh, what Paul has to say about singleness and God's gift, as well as think a little bit about marriage and divorce. And then Lord willing, we'll come back next time to continue to think uh, as Paul deals with a specific case about marriage and divorce, and hopefully see Paul's dependence, really, upon principles embedded in the Old Testament, which I think we, we badly need to learn how to wisely and faithfully apply in our own context today. Um, that being said, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 6 through 11, let me give you a quick outline, um, a roadmap for us today. We're going to think about singleness and the gift of God and divorce and the word of God. Singleness and the gift of God, divorce and the word of God. Uh, before we read scripture though, let's pray and, and ask for the Lord's help. Uh, Lord, with your word open before us now, we pray for the ministry of the Holy Spirit and ask that we would receive the, the light of understanding um, and the grace of humility and faith to receive your word to us that we might walk in, in, in obedience and humility as we seek to follow our Redeemer and our Lord Jesus Christ, who speaks to us here in this portion of your word. Amen. 1 Corinthians 7, uh, beginning in verse 6. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single, as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord, the wife should not separate from her husband, 
But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Well, let's just forego any further introduction and get right to it this morning. What does Paul mean uh, by his teaching here regarding singleness? What does he have to say about singleness and the gift of God? I think it's right to say that the, the world around us thinks that to insist on celibacy for singles is to condemn them to a life of uh, misery, uh, a life that's incomplete, um, unfulfilled, and ultimately unsatisfying. You, you can't possibly be happy and fulfilled if you live a celibate, single life. So the thinking goes today. And that's, that's the world's perspective, perspective. And sometimes under the pressure of that view, many of us who are called to singleness for a season of life or singleness as a, a lifetime calling can as a result feel a, a deep restlessness and dissatisfaction. And, and while we're at it, let's, let's be honest here that, that the church hasn't always been helpful on this topic of singleness. Because while the world pressures you to change your sexual ethic as a single, the church sometimes pressures you to just get married as soon as possible and, and treat singleness as a kind of second-class category within the church of Jesus Christ, something to be avoided, if at all possible. So many Christians today, I think, presuppose the normativity of marriage that we sometimes fail to remember the singles in our midst. And I think that can leave them with the distinct impression that as a single person in the church, they are somehow deficient or somehow lacking. And what they, they need to do if they're really going to belong or really arrive is get married as soon as possible. So there's no question that singleness today, if you're a Christian, can be difficult. But in contrast to you know, single, uh, uh, singleness as a life of celibacy or uh, a life of, of misery or an undesirable state for Christians, I want you to take a look at what Paul says about singleness in our passage First of all, looking at verses 6 through 8. Paul writes, Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Now, as Paul affirms singleness as positively as he does here, he knows that he runs the risk of being misunderstood by a group within the Corinthian church. It is good to remain single as I am, he says. But you remember that there were Corinthian Christians who thought that celibate singleness was not merely one possibility for Christians, but ought to be the choice for every really serious spiritual follower of Christ. Remember that group within the church of Corinth that was saying... Their slogan was, it is, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. 
Everyone, therefore, seeking to follow Christ should avoid marriage and sex because it's too concerned with this life and with bodily passions. And so while Paul affirms singleness here, notice the balance of what he says. He says this isn't a command. Verse 6, singleness is not obligatory, no matter what some of the misguided Corinthian believers were teaching. You see, the church cannot bind the consciences and compel celibacy for anyone. And I think, I think we'd all agree that the long, ugly, dark story of sexual abuse and scandal, for example, in the Roman Catholic Church, is but one example of what happens when we go beyond what is written in the Word of God in this area. And so this is not a command, Paul says. This is a concession. He is conceding that singleness is indeed a good and noble calling. In fact, he even says that he wishes that all could be as he is and live a single life free of the burdens and cares that sometimes come with marriage. You know, if if you're married and if you have children, that there's a limit to what you can do because of legitimate and good responsibilities you have to your spouse and your children. Limits that those who are single do not have. And he'll repeat this idea later in verse 28 where he says, those who marry will have worldly troubles and I would spare you that. So in his singleness, Paul found a freedom. Not a freedom to live for himself, but a liberty to serve Christ. And he, and he, and he found that in his singleness, he found a great satisfaction and joy, and he wanted the same for other Christians. Now, as we work through Paul's teaching here about singleness, it, it may help us to just reflect on this for a moment and know that there is at least some evidence to suggest that Paul was at one point in his life a married man. Uh, before his conversion, you'll, you'll recall that he was a, a member of the strictest sect of Judaism. He was, he was a Pharisee, member of the ruling council, the Sanhedrin, which actually required that members be married. And so it was normative. And, uh, and so that has led some to, to, to suggest and to conclude that Paul likely at one point was a married man. And that means that by the time Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, he was, he was already either a widower or perhaps his wife may have left him upon his conversion to Christ. We don't know. But if that's the case, that would make the words that he will write in verses 12 through 16, which we'll come to, Lord willing, next week, more than just uh, abstract teaching from the Apostle Paul, but something that he himself has lived. As Paul talks about marriage and singleness, it is at least possible that he is writing as a person who has been there and whose own heart bears the scars of loss. But whatever you make of that, this much is is certainly clear. Paul does not think about singleness the same way as our culture, culture or the way that many within the church do today. In our culture, without a theological understanding of marriage and sexuality, 
It just doesn't make any sense why singleness and celibacy ought to go together. That's the world. But in the church, singleness is sometimes viewed as something to be escaped from in order to truly belong and arrive in the Christian life. And I think Paul is rejecting both of those mistakes. Singleness as a calling has its own dignity, worth, and purpose in the kingdom of God. And pay close attention to how Paul locates the difference between those who remain single and those who get married. The difference does not reside in the individuals themselves per se, but rather in the gift of God. And so if you look at verse 7, Paul says, each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. And so celibate singleness is a gift of God, Paul is saying. Now, before you balk at that, before you just rule this out, let, let this sink in for a minute. Paul says, it is a gift. And that word gift in the Greek shares, shares the same root as the word for, for grace. Like charis is grace. Charisma is the word gift. And that, I think, helps us a little bit here. Paul is saying, I think, that if God in his providence calls you to a single life, if he assigns it to you, he will give you the grace you need to find in your singleness satisfaction and contentment and usefulness in the service of the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is the ground of faithfulness in stewarding the gift of singleness. And, and so perhaps, perhaps, we might need an adjustment in our thinking when it comes to singleness in the Christian life. Paul is clear here, isn't he? Singleness is, is not a punishment, no matter what others might say to the contrary. It is a gift because it leaves you free to serve Christ in ways that the married cannot. And so the Bible teaches that singleness can be a gift of grace and that the resources of grace are, are available to keep and sustain you and to satisfy you in that calling. Now, having said that, do notice that, that the Apostle Paul is, is quick to qualify what he says in verse 9. Not everyone is called or gifted for singleness. For some, he acknowledges the fight for sexual purity is overwhelmingly difficult, the desire for companionship and intimacy. And so Paul says, if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And so at the end of the day, Paul is saying there are two options for Christians, two options for living the Christian life, celibate singleness or faithfulness in marriage, celibate singleness or faithfulness and marriage and the gift of God differently distributed according to his wisdom and purpose is what makes all the difference celibate singleness or faithful marriage are together paths of obedience to the call of the Lord Jesus for which he will give the grace that we need that we might honor him and live a content life in his service so singleness and the gift of God. Now, if that wasn't difficult enough, buckle up, 
Let's go to the second thing here and think about divorce and the word of God. Let's start here. Notice, notice first of all, the, the parenthetical statement in verse 10, where Paul says, not I, but the Lord, and it's opposite in verse 12, which we'll come to next time in more detail, um, where Paul says, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord. Now, those two statements in parentheses have caused a few to wonder what exactly Paul means. Some have wondered, does this mean, you know, that, that one is uh, the authoritative teaching of Christ and the other is just the circumstantial advice of Paul? Does this mean that one is authoritative and one is not, and one, the other is not binding upon believers today? People wrestle with that. Well, here's what I think is really being said. Very, very simply, in verse 10, Paul is citing the expressed, known teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is known throughout the churches regarding marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Paul is alluding to and relying upon passages that we have in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's Gospels, where the Lord Jesus is asked a question about marriage and divorce. And he responds, we'll we'll use Matthew 19, verse 9, as our example today, because it's the most full um, description of this encounter. And, And Jesus says that if a man divorces his wife for any other reason except for sexual immorality, that... Uh, and, and he marries another that he is guilty of adultery. Let's just slow down for a minute and, and think about this. Because in the gospel accounts, Jesus is responding to a question from the Pharisees about when divorce is permissible. Now, at that time, one of the things I'm going to suggest to you today is really to understand and apply the teaching of Jesus in the gospels and the teaching of Paul in 1 Corinthians, we really need to understand the historical context. So we need to do our homework here. And at that time, there was an ongoing debate during the time of Jesus among religious leaders, and at the heart of that debate was how to read Deuteronomy chapter 24, particularly verses 1 through 4, And at the end of the day, the debate focused on Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. There were really two schools of thought. There was one prominent rabbi by the name of Hillel who taught that Deuteronomy 24 uh, contained two uh, reasons for divorce. Uh, The one being sexual immorality. uh, Behind the word, in our translation, indecency. However, if you go and look at the passage in your ESV, you'll find the language of some indecency. And the Hebrew behind that language led Hillel to say, not only is divorce permissible for sexual immorality, it's permissible for any cause. And that became legal language that was used regularly. Now, the other school of thought said, Deuteronomy 24 teaches that divorce is only permissible on the grounds of sexual immorality. Now, during the time of Jesus' earthly ministry, the any-cause, Hillelite divorce, had become a common practice in the day. It had become the chief way that husbands would pursue the divorcing of their wives. 
because it was easy. Because it, it didn't require a long, drawn-out process. One did not have to prove his case. Uh, the wife did not have an opportunity to defend herself or to make her own case. All he had to do was go and obtain a certificate of divorce, place it in the hands of his wife, and that's it. It was finalized. Uh, so many opted for what uh, some call Hillelite divorce. And so when the Pharisees came to Jesus with their question, understanding that background should really shed a lot of light on the question that's actually being asked, because what is the question? The question is, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? And you see what they're asking. They, they are testing Jesus and they're they're asking him to weigh in on this ongoing rabbinical debate. And so when Jesus says that if a man divorces his wife for any reason except for sexual immorality, and, so, and what he goes on to say, he is not saying, he is not saying that the only legitimate reason a divorce may occur is sexual immorality. No, in the context of the debate, he is answering the question about a proper and right reading of Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. And Jesus is speaking out against any cause divorce, which was so common in his day. We actually have examples in the, the tradition of Hillel and the writings of Hillel of men divorcing their wives for overcooking supper. Right? That, that's, that's how gross it had, been, had become. And so at a time when men were twisting the scriptures, Jesus was speaking out against any cause divorce. And he says that any husband who does that kind of thing and marries another is guilty of adultery because God still considers him responsible for his former marriage obligations. Now, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is referencing that teaching. And that is what he means by not I, but the Lord. He's saying, this is known. This is the teaching of the Lord Jesus, recorded in the Gospels. And then in verse 12, when he says, not the Lord, but I, all he's saying is that this is not the expressed recorded words of Jesus during his ministry on earth. But this is now Paul, the apostle, uh, as an inspired apostle speaking, Paul is going to, to, to speak to an issue which Jesus did not directly address during his earthly ministry. And so this isn't merely advice. Uh, it is the inspired teaching of an apostle of Christ, and, and therefore it is the authoritative word of God for the people of God. Both Christ's and Paul's words bear the authority of the word of God. And I think that's important for us to see because Paul has some challenging things to say to us. So we need to know, like the Corinthians needed to know, why, why should we submit to this teaching? And Paul wants us to understand that we ought to submit to it because it bears the weight and the authority of Christ and his inspired apostle. This teaching carries the authority of the word of God. And so here I believe in a nutshell, is what Paul is saying to this group of immature Corinthian Christians. He is saying to them, dear Christians, 
Divorce is not something that you can carry around in your back pocket and pull out when things don't go the way that you hoped they would go. Now, like I said a few moments ago, to really understand and faithfully apply what Paul, I think, is saying in this passage, however, we need to do our homework. And we need to think deeply about what Paul is saying here in the context of Corinth. Because like any cause divorce in Jesus' context... The Greco-Roman society had its own version of divorce on demand, which we might call divorce by separation. In order to obtain a divorce in the Roman world at this time, all one had to do was physically separate from their spouse. And so if your spouse was the owner of the home, all you needed to do was move out. Or if you were the owner of the property, all you had to do was send your spouse packing, and that legally constituted a divorce. There was no long, drawn-out legal process. Uh, Physical separation constituted uh, divorce, and both were considered free to remarry under Roman law. And so while Jesus spoke out against any cause divorce in his context, here is Paul, I think, speaking out against divorce by separation in the Greco-Roman world. Remember, Paul is writing to to first-generation Christians who have likely had little to no example of Christian marriage. And they have lived and they have grown up and been influenced by a culture where the law of the land is easy divorce. If you don't like being married anymore, if you don't like your spouse for some reason, all you have to do is separate from them. That's the world that they, they grew up in And we know from historical records that people were divorcing others left and right for all kinds of reasons. And so Paul is teaching Christians that Roman divorce by separation is not an option. Groundless divorce is not God's will. It is instead a distortion of a provision God allows for in his word to protect individuals who find themselves married to hard-hearted people who have no intention of ever keeping their marriage vows. More on that next week. Marriages weren't meant to end in divorce from the beginning, as Jesus says. But due to man's hardness of heart, Sometimes they sadly do. And that being said, Christians, Paul is saying, Christians can't just you know, willy-nilly separate from their spouse and consider themselves divorced and free to remarry. That's what Paul is saying to this group of believers. That's not how Christians are to think or to live in regard to marriage. Christians are to be committed to their marriages. By, by God's grace, they're to do everything they can to to maintain and strengthen the relationship, and if possible, restore it when the relationship has broken down. Now, there are exceptions. There are exceptions on the basis of Scripture which allow for divorce. And like I said, we're going to come to think about that more in a more focused manner next week. But Paul is saying here in verse 10, That if you are a Christian who divorces illegitimately, that you should remain unmarried or else be reconciled. 
If you divorce without cause, you are not free from your marriage obligations, he's saying. You see, Paul, Paul is speaking out clearly here against this regular practice of divorce by separation, divorce without legitimate biblical grounds. And it is crucial, I think, that we understand that or we will badly misapply his teaching. And here's what that looks like. Paul's teaching might be read, wrongly I think, but it might be read as an absolute command without any further biblical qualification. And it might be read, wrongly I think, but it might be read out of its Greco-Roman context of divorce by separation being the issue that Paul is speaking against here. And if this verse is read as an absolute command, ripped out of its context, the resulting teaching is that no Christian should ever get divorced, period, end of discussion. And if he or she does, they must remain single or reconcile. And if that, mis- if that interpretation is misguided, which I'm convinced it is, here's what it leads to, or it can lead to. It can lead to heaping false guilt on Christians who have done everything they could do to maintain a relationship with someone who has persistently, habitually shown that they have no intention of being faithful to the marriage. And it tells them that if they get a divorce, that they must remain single or reconcile to their former spouse, who may very well be a hard-hearted individual who has no intention of fulfilling their marital responsibilities. You see, if we misunderstand and misapply Paul's teaching, we will expect Christians who have gone through hell on earth, frankly, and have suffered a lamentable divorce to then bear the burden of reconciling to someone who may very well be unrepentant or remain single when biblically they may be free. And so I'm laying all of that out here so you understand, yes, the stakes are high here. And therefore, it is crucial that we be faithful, careful, humble readers of the text and that we read this text in light of the the whole canon of Scripture. In my study of this issue, what what I have discovered that one of the most fundamental errors that, that folks commit is what I'll call proof texting. And what I mean by that is we take one passage of scripture, rip it out of its context, and consider it on its own, not in the light of the teaching of the whole word of God. And I think that mistake is prevalent when it comes to the issues of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. But that's not how we are supposed to read our Bibles, is it? Scripture is meant to interpret scripture. But let's come back to the text and let's be clear about what Paul is indeed saying here. He is saying that if a Christian divorces without biblical cause, that they ought to remain unmarried or reconcile. So for Christians living in the Greco-Roman culture, groundless divorce by separation was not an option. Just as for followers of Jesus, any cause or Hillelite divorce was not a legitimate option. Now, let's face it, that's hard. That's hard teaching. That's a, that's a challenging teaching in our age of no-fault divorce where people divorce for all kinds of 
What's the language? Irreconcilable differences. And I'm sure some of us have questions, legitimate questions, that Paul simply is not addressing here in this, in this verse. You know, what about those who have divorced and remarried when they ought to have remained singled or reconciled? And if there are biblical exceptions to this charge, and there are, then what are they? And what about those who have remained in a marriage when to do so has been unspeakably difficult and painful for them? What about them, Paul? We might have those questions. And next week, we're going to try to do our best to address some of those questions. Because chances are, we all know people in circumstances like that. Maybe we're one of them. And for one reason or another, we we likely all have questions about this important but difficult and complex issue of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. But you see, Paul doesn't go into detail here. He He is simply confronting the divorce by separation so prevalent in the culture and says that just because you decided to separate from your spouse, dear believer, does not mean that you are free from your marriage obligations. Let me say say something else at this point because I I know that some of of you struggle with with questions, with, with failure, with pain, or with complicated consequences because of decisions in this whole area of divorce and remarriage. And you need to know, we need to to know that the gospel applies to this too. You need to know that there is both forgiveness in this as in everything else as we look to Christ and there is grace for heartache for each of us in every circumstance. We need to remember that even in the midst of the fallout of our messy and broken relationships, Jesus Christ really is enough. Jesus Christ really is enough. And there is grace for us in him. And let me also say, if if you do want to talk about the questions that you have, about particulars of your situation, I I would love to talk with you. Feel free to come and talk with me anytime. But today, let's just acknowledge honestly The the challenge of this text, the challenge of 1 Corinthians 7. Yes, there are unanswered questions. But unanswered questions we may cite and complicated cases do not invalidate the principle that Paul wants all Christians to embrace. The authoritative teaching of both Jesus and his inspired apostle calls us to marital fidelity. Marital fidelity, faithfulness, commitment. The call of discipleship, you see, has implications for our marriages. The call of discipleship has implications in how we, how we live together as husbands and wives. His, Jesus' words have, have bearing on how we love and serve and care and speak to one another in the bonds of marriage. You simply, you simply cannot read faithfully the teaching of the Lord Jesus and the Apostle Paul today, and then go home and trample all over your marriage vows. And our context, you see, if you think about it, our own context today is not all that far removed from the, from the Roman law of divorce by separation or the, the Hillelite practice of divorce for any cause. Today, if you feel like it, you can get out of your marriage and move on to the next. And so Paul's words speak, I think, with a particular 
pointedness and, and relevance, don't they? And as we hear them, let's, let's remember that they come to us with, with the weight and the authority of the word of God. Jesus teaches it, Paul teaches it, and it might be hard and challenging, but that settles the matter, doesn't it? And so singleness, singleness and the gift of God. Now, there is grace to satisfy the heart in the noble calling of a single and celibate life. And then secondly, divorce and the word of God, the culturally challenging teaching of Christ and his apostle carries the authority of the word of God and to its teaching we must submit. And so may the Lord help us. May the Lord give us the grace to to live faithfully in light of his word as we cling to the Lord Jesus Christ for all that we need. Let's pray together. Father, we confess to you that these are hard truths as we wrestle with them and seek to apply them faithfully in our own context. We pray for grace. Help us. Help us please to live uh, in joyful obedience and submission to the claims of Jesus Christ even as it relates to our singleness and our marriages. We ask this for the sake of his glory. Amen.